If you're taking an oral anticoagulant, should you worry about respiratory infections? Improved therapy for men with advanced prostate cancer. Hope for people who have untreated advanced melanoma. And individuals hospitalized with Omicron COVID during. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, in keeping with our longstanding now custom, let's start with the COVID material, a research letter in JAMA. This is data I've actually been interested in seeing. Everybody knows that in late November of 2021, the SARS variant of concern called the Omicron was first identified in South Africa. And the high number of spike mutations has really caused concern that it's able to evade vaccine and actually spread more widely. So what these individuals did was they assessed hospitalized patients with a positive COVID test during the four different waves associated with COVID infections in South Africa. The first wave occurred with what's called the ancestral variant. The second wave occurred with the beta variant, the third with the Delta, and finally the fourth with the Omicron. So they looked at the characteristics of individuals hospitalized during this time. In particular, with the Omicron variant, there was a very different pattern of characteristics and outcomes of patients hospitalized with COVID compared to those in the previous three waves. People with Omicron, they're much younger. Their average age of hospitalization is 36, whereas in the previous ones, it was people in their 50s. People in the fourth wave were more likely to have a shorter hospitalization. They were less likely to require therapy with oxygen, and that's significant, about 18% in the fourth wave versus 76% in the previous waves. The individuals that presented with the emergency department with the previous waves, about two-thirds of them end up getting hospitalized. But here with the Omicron variant, it's down to 41%. and appears to be a decrease in both severity and mortality. Good news, of course. And then there's also emerging data in this country and in the UK and elsewhere in the world that seems to be supporting a lot of these assertions. And at least some of the basic science information that I've been seeing says, wow, it looks like Omicron might preferentially infect more parts of the upper respiratory tree, if you will, rather than diving deep into the lungs and causing all kinds of issues. So that may be what accounts for as being more transmissible, but less pathogenic. Yeah, let's hope. We're going to just keep that front and center as this giant wave continues to engulf the country. Since we're talking about respiratory tract infections, then let's turn to the BMJ. This is something that I'm really quite interested in your take on this. They looked at people who are on oral anticoagulants, and that's a lot of people. We know that the reason people are on that is because they're trying to make sure they don't have strokes. These were community-based folks in the UK. There were 1,208 adult users of warfarin or direct oral anticoagulants. These are seen in a general practice or hospital admission with a record of a bleeding event between January 2010 and December 2019. So pretty long period of time of follow-up and almost no surprises that there was some transition in the warfarin or Coumadin use and the other oral anticoagulants. They looked at these, what they called exposure periods in the zero to 14 days after consultation, and they identified major bleeds and then other things that were non-major bleeds during these time periods. Basically what they found that the incidence of major bleeding was two and a half times higher increase among those folks who were taking 
an oral anticoagulant versus those who were not. And so this may be an important signal for folks who are on these things. Yeah, they looked at almost 62,000 individuals that were on oral anticoagulation. And of those, about 1,200 have bleeds. And as you alluded to, in the first two weeks after the respiratory infection was diagnosed, it just about doubled the risk of having a major bleeding episode, major meaning it was life-threatening or it resulted in death. Even in less severe bleeding, still required medical intervention. That was still two and a half times higher as well. This is kind of interesting because in the past, we assumed that this increased bleeding was due to the administration of antibiotics, but these individuals we're talking about did not receive antibiotics. So their increased bleeding is just a result of their infection. This was true regardless of whether they received Coumadin or the other anticoagulants, what are called DOACs, the direct oral anticoagulants. Now, what does it mean? Well, first of all, it needs to be confirmed in larger studies because if this is true, we may need to consider monitoring coagulation of the blood or decreasing doses of medications after respiratory tract infections. I agree. And I think that they also note that there's been an increase in oral anticoagulant use of 54% in the United States and 71% in the UK. When they speculate on, help me to understand why this might actually be happening. A lot of these people, when they have a URI, are also taking a bunch of other stuff. So they might be taking, as I love to say, paracetamol or acetaminophen, or they might be taking something else to deal with their symptoms. What do you think about that hypothesis for why this is happening? Well, Elizabeth, that would certainly explain why people on Coumadin have increased risk of bleeding because there's a lot of drug-drug interaction there. Because this also extends to individuals that are taking the direct oral anticoagulant, and that's not known to be associated with drug-drug interactions, it makes me think that there's another explanation. Right. They also cite this increased clotting factor catabolism secondary to fever, which I was unaware of. So I think it is really provocative and interesting, and no doubt we're going to be hearing more about this. Yes. Let us turn to yours now in the Lancet. Maybe good news for men with prostate cancer. We're always looking for ways to improve treatment with prostate cancer. The majority of men who die from prostate cancer in Europe and North America are actually non-metastatic at the time they're diagnosed. So this study was looking at combination therapy to see whether in this particular group, which has never been applied to, could it actually improve overall survival? Now, the routine therapy in men that have prostate cancer that hasn't metastasized but is high risk is to give them androgen deprivation therapy to try to decrease testosterone. Well, in addition to that routine therapy, sometimes used concomitantly with radiotherapy. These investigators tried two other additional therapies or combination therapy. One is using an additional agent, abiraterone, which combined with prednisone to decrease the side effects, actually is a more effective androgen depletion therapy than what we're doing currently. And then adding another one on top of that called enzalutamide. So either using one or both of those agents. When they did this in a large group of men, 1,974 patients, there was a significant difference in what's called metastasis-free survival when a single agent was used compared to the current androgen deprivation therapy. Now, by the way, adding both of those agents didn't provide any additional benefit. All it did was increase the risk of side effects. How significant was this? Well, the survival over six years, metastasis-free, increased from 69% to 82% with this combination therapy. So the authors suggest, based upon this, is this ought to be the new paradigm for treatment of these men. Let's talk some more about the side effects, because clearly that's something, especially with the androgen deprivation therapy, that's very troubling. 
Uh-huh. When they looked at it just based upon androgen deprivation therapy alone, the adverse grade three or higher events during the first 24 months occurred in 29% with routine therapy and in only 37% with the additional therapy. Most men tolerate this therapy well. I'm wondering about the size of this population, if you will. With routine screening, I'm wondering about the decline in the number of men who will actually present with disease that's this advanced going forward. So I don't have specific numbers about how many hundreds of thousands or millions of men that this would apply to. I would bring you back to the fact that the majority of men who die from prostate cancer in both Europe and North America at the time of diagnosis don't have metastasis. That's good news then for men with prostate cancer. Let's turn to good news for people who have melanoma and advanced melanoma at the time of diagnosis, which is what this study is taking a look at. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's basically using two different agents It's called the 2-3 relativity trial in patients with previously untreated metastatic or inoperable melanoma who were randomly assigned to receive either single agent called nivolumab or a combination of another one that's called relatlimab and nivolumab. And those target different what are called immune checkpoint inhibitors and they take a look at, well, is this combination more effective? What is really impressive is that the median progression-free survival among those folks who were treated with the combination was 10.1 months, and that's compared to only 4.6 months among people who received nivolumab alone. That's excellent. Now, the adverse events, as we would probably suspect, were more common with the combination therapy than with the monotherapy with the nivolumab alone with about 19% of patients in the combination group having grade three or four treatment-related adverse events, compared with just about 10% of patients in the monotherapy group. However, when we take a look at that rate compared to this other previous standard of care treatment, that other treatment that was employed before, almost 60% of patients had really severe reactions. And so this is really looking like this is gonna be the deal particularly for advanced melanoma, combined immunotherapy has become really the treatment of choice. Prior to immunotherapy, we really didn't have any good ways of treating melanoma. What this immunotherapy does, as you mentioned the term, immune checkpoint. These are things that we all have. Our body wants to know that, okay, our immune system doesn't attack our own body, but it does attack foreign proteins or foreign antigens. And so we want to direct our immune system to them, but not to ourselves. And the immune checkpoint system, what takes advantage of that? Well, cancer cells have taken advantage of that as well to escape our immune system. What these immune checkpoint inhibitors do is they allow our cells to activate to attack the cancer. There are multiple different ways and multiple different immune checkpoint pathways that need to be addressed. New inhibitors need to be developed and appropriate combinations and actually doing the genetic analysis that says which checkpoint inhibitor will be most successful in this particular cancer. Exactly. I learned something here and it was about exhausted T cells, which I didn't realize that that was a problem. And it turns out that that is a problem. And so blocking one of these factors actually allows the T cells to say, oh, I'll wake up now and attack the tumor. And that's exactly how tumors escape our natural immune system in a lot of ways. Sometimes they prevent its recognition. Sometimes they prevent activation of T cells, or sometimes they just, again, put T cells to sleep. And so all these different pathways can be addressed with new therapies that we're developing. It's a very exciting area of cancer therapy.
Unquestionably. I guess I would finally ask this question about this population of folks, advanced melanoma metastatic in some cases that was previously untreated. Wow. How big a group is that? As we've had more people exposed to sun, it's obviously related to developing sunburn at an earlier age and not using sunblock as well. So for all of these reasons, the incidence of melanoma has been increasing worldwide. So folks, there's hope for that, but use your sunscreen. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.